everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. We're on to episode 78, and this is another one of those mail grab bag kind of episodes that I need to catch up on my inbox. Uh, I feel like if I wait too long to answer, people will stop sending in questions, so I gotta uh, stay on top of this. So as usual, send me questions, guys. I love to hear them. Most of the time I read a question and go, ah, I never thought of that. So it does seem that there's no end to the things that I can talk about on this show. Um, So please send me an email at lumberupdate at gmail.com or just go to lumberupdate.com and you can submit a question via the form there as well. You know what? You can also reach me at lumberupdate on Instagram. Uh, I've gotten a few questions that way as well. So thank you, everybody, for those questions. Also got a couple of voicemails this week to play. I do love those voicemails. Um, let's get a little bit into feedback. This was interesting. Matthew sent me an article about the forestry industry in Australia. It's a really well-written article and, well, to be honest, kind of depressing because <laughs> it talks a lot about guys that have been in the forestry world for decades and decades, generations of family-run businesses that are now wondering, what do we do now? Um, you may remember a couple episodes ago, I talked about how Australia has banned the logging of local species. So what do we do? You know, sourcing locally is a great idea, as I've talked about uh, in recent episodes and that uh, episode I had with Cambium Carbon. It all sounds like a fantastic idea, but what do you do when local is prohibited? Now, Australia... They're an odd duck. Um, I think Australians kind of almost view that as a badge of honor. You know, it's a continent that's it's kind of odd from the animals it has to the trees that it has. And certainly they have a lot of rainforest land and a lot of rainforest type trees, but then they also have just like arid, arid, arid desert. And the trees that do exist there are representative of that. You know, very, very difficult to work silicic uh, high value trees. So what happens when you you can't get them at all and you're on a you know an island um everything becomes an import at that point imports are already quite expensive now you've got local trees that um are outlawed and the australian government is putting kind of all their chips into the softwood market going after these softwood plantations and you know as many of you know radiata pine comes from down that way certainly a lot of it's coming out of new zealand but there's also a fair amount of softwood industry in australia as well this article talks about how the math does not work out how the amount of softwood that's there can't possibly handle the overflow that's going to come from a lack of a hardwood market moreover the softwood market is already underserved and already requiring a huge amount of import from outside of australia that there's just no way. So a lot of these um, family-run businesses that have been around for 40, 50 years are basically saying, look, we're going to have to use up the stock we have and then, I don't know, start selling something else or retire and go out of business. Um, This is actually very similar to what we're hearing out of a lot of small sawmills in Canada, Um, even in, in, in the U.S., where the supply chain crunch and COVID labor shortages and things have just forced these businesses to decide not to carry on, to just go ahead and retire, to not find someone to replace them and run the business, but just shutter the business. So Matthew um, closes with, so what do I do? Like, how do I, I love to source locally, but what if that's illegal? So what do I do now? And, and Matthew, I don't have an answer to that. I don't think anybody has an answer to that. I would love to say 
that this idea of locally sourced and repurposing a waste chain like we talked about with cambium carbon and urban logging and things like that could maybe have a place in Australia. But I feel like Australia is kind of sort of already doing that to some extent. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's just not enough the way the trees are distributed in Australia are not um, not enough to be able to do that. Does Do Australian cities have the same type of municipal programs that I have here in North America, where if you remember, again, back to that cambium carbon episode, there's more trees coming out of these urban areas um, due to civil programs and things than there actually are coming out of plantations. I feel like that's not the case in Australia, and I, I am looking at that huge swath of desert, the outback right in the middle of the continent. I'm looking at all the trees kind of crowded along the coastline, but even then, the largest part of population density should be along the coastline as well. I feel like Australian cities should have some sort of plan, and maybe that's a first step. Maybe figuring out a way to repurpose this, and it could be a matter of trying to find companies like Cambium Carbon. Believe me, Cambium Carbon is not the only one in North. America. I wonder if there are some options in Australia and maybe we can begin to repurpose this. The other option is collaborative buying trying to figure out um, who is importing material and can larger volumes be imported and kind of spread out over you know multiple users. This becomes uh, ideas like the Lumberman's Consortium where we've got multiple, whether they be retailers or manufacturers and things like that here in North America that come together and kind of join this club and they use their, their weight numbers to buy material and kind of distribute from there. That cooperative buying idea may have some possibility, but you're still relying upon import from other areas of the world. And, you know, I just feel like long term, as supply chain gets tighter and tighter and tighter, the best way to solve this is to cut the supply chain out and source locally. So I would love to hear from Australian woodworkers, amateurs, professionals, manufacturers, what are your plans? How do you plan to handle this? Where do you plan to get your material? Because I honestly don't have an answer. And I'm going to be horribly optimistic and probably horribly naive at the same time. Maybe this is an opportunity where Australia, their hand is being forced and saying no more local wood. So what do we do now? Um, Kind of like when a species is outlawed altogether, it takes that outlawing for an industry to move away from a particular species. People kicked and screamed when mahogany was CITES listed and dramatically reduced the, the exports. And they said, I can't use anything else, can't use anything else. And here we are 10 years later, people have moved on a Sapili. And a lot of these manufacturers are saying, oh, this is better than, than the genuine mahogany. But it took forcing of that hand. It took outlawing of the genuine mahogany, um, not outlawing, but you know, from global export of over 100 containers to nine containers, that's almost outlawing it. Maybe this is the opportunity that Australia can get creative and find something here. I wish I had answers for you, Matthew, but I would love to hear from my listeners. I know I've got a lot of you down under. Let me hear from you. Let me hear how you're going to do it, whether you are building one piece of furniture a year or your manufacturer building hundreds of thousands of pieces of furniture or whatever using wood per year. I'd love to hear from you. So let's move on to some voicemails here. I have a voicemail from Garrett on the idea of moving from logs to boards and how we go about dealing with the drying issue, kind of an adjunct to the episode I had on, you've got logs, now what? This is Garrett Roberson from HMR Custom Woodcraft. I had a question about when does green lumber go from being green to air dried? 
I ask this because I am building a timber frame shed in the spring of 2023 and I will be using a bunch of eastern white pine I have on my property. I'll be felling it in the fall of this year and then basically it will set as logs through the fall and winter into the spring when I will mill it up into the timbers. So, I guess, is that okay? I know it's preferable to use green lumber for timber framing, and I'm just curious if it will still be considered green at that point in time or not. Okay, Garrett, interesting question. First and foremost, um, there really isn't a standard that says of a log or a board is green and air dried. The standards all fall around kiln dried. You know, North American standard for kiln dried, 12 to 15%, or excuse me, European standard, 12 to 15%, North American standard, 6 to 8%. Air dried is a way of drying. Um, technically, we want air dried to be equilibrium moisture content or EMC. In my shop, that's about 11 to 12%. So if I were to air dry a board, I could officially call it air dried, past tense, when it reaches EMC. In the desert of, you know, Phoenix, maybe that's 4%. Um, so air dried is just a way of drying it. There is no distinction to say, okay, if it is, you know, 12 to, to 18%, it's air dried. Green is kind of the same way. Green is, it's wet. Um, I went and asked around, I asked a couple of my sawmill suppliers, I asked my, um, my buyers, um, couple of my clients and said, what would you consider to not be green anymore from a workability standpoint? Because that's really what we're talking about. You know, uh, you're going to timber frame, green lumber is going to be a lot easier to chop out those mortises and things like that. And several of the timber framers I talked to said, basically anything under about 25%, they don't consider it to be green anymore. And it's in some state of dryness. Um, many of the sawmill operators I talked to said green is, is, is anything above, um, 15%. My buyer said he considers things to be green if they're above 30%. And he's looking at it mainly from a weight perspective. Um, it's just way too heavy to ship this stuff if it's 30% moisture. So he's looking for something to be down below that in order to be able to get more footage onto a truck. He bought, he's buying in terms of boards. None of these folks are moving logs um, other than like moving it from a concession to the sawmill. They're not shipping logs by any means. Logs are going to be much wetter than that um, and much heavier than that, but you're also going to have a higher waste content. So again, you can't really say this is air dried and therefore it's X percent moisture. This is green and therefore it's X percent moisture. I, I kind of fall on the same line. If it's 30% or higher, I still consider it to be sopping wet. Um, if you've ever worked with something that's 30% or higher, you actually like, your tools will start to rust. Like chop a mortise and that mortise will fill up with water. Because above 30%, there's still free water in the cells. That water that would drain out if you stood the board up vertically and gravity would drain it out. Once you get below about 25%, almost all the free water is gone and what's left is the water that's bound in the cells. So when it's above that, you're actually going to have, like I said, chop a mortise and that mortise is going to fill with water as, as water drains into that 
literally that hole. Uh, it's like digging a, a hole in the desert and eventually it will fill with water. Well, not always, but you get the idea. So as far as is it still workable? Yeah. I mean, kiln drying will harden the cell walls. It will also uh, provide, um, introduce some tension into the board, especially in thicker cants and six by sixes and eight by eights and things used for timber framing. Air dried means the wood is going to have a slightly spongier nature to it. It's going to be easier to chop and easier on the, the edges and things like that. But if you have these trees that are still growing, they haven't been felled, um, if you seal those ends and leave them in log form, they will still be green um, in many instances several years later. And I talked about this in my episode on, you know, logs. You've got a log, now what? You can actually, the best way to protect that wood and keep it from, from rotting, keeping it from drying out prematurely, is to keep it in log form. So I don't think you have anything to worry about. If you fell those trees now, but you're not actually going to timber frame until next summer, I think you're perfectly fine. Be conscious to seal those ends, latex paint, anchor seal, whatever you want to use, to slow that exchange of moisture at the end, mainly to prevent too much checking from happening. And then go ahead and saw those into timbers or saw them at least into cants, you know, uh, right before you start framing. And you'll still have green lumber to work with. Uh, it may be even a little bit more stable because it's had time to kind of season and not actively growing. So I don't think you're going to have any issues there. I also don't think it's impossible to timber frame with drier timbers, with timbers below 25%. Uh, a lot of the timber framers I know who are not sourcing their material from logs that are sourcing it from like dealers like myself, um, especially if it's species that don't grow in the immediate region. Timber framers on the Atlantic coast are using a lot of Douglas fir, but that fir is coming all the way from British Columbia. And that's being shipped generally on rails because of the, the size of the timbers, the length of the timbers. That has been uh, radio frequency kiln dried in many instances down below 18% because again, shipping it higher moisture than that is going to be way too heavy and therefore cost prohibitive, but also lower the amount of stock. You can only put so much weight on a, tra on a train car. You can only put so much weight, even less weight on a tractor trailer going on the highways. So then you know, you're paying the same amount of money, but you're only getting like three timbers. Whereas if you dried it a little bit more, you might be able to get six timbers or seven timbers for the same price because of that massive weight of water. So many, many timber framers these days are dealing with what one might even call kiln dried material. Uh, radio frequency kiln drying can actually uh, get, a, get a timber quite dry without introducing a whole bunch of the tension that comes from higher temperature drying. So it's not impossible. It's not it's easier certainly to timber frame something with greener, wetter material, but heck, that's what chain mortisers are for. <laughs> <laughs> drying, uh, drying, uh, creating a big old mortise and a six to eight percent eight by eight timber. So anyway, interesting question, Garrett. I appreciate you sending that in and good luck with that. I, I want to hear back um, how the, the felling and the, the sawing and all that fun stuff goes. It's good stuff to hear. Now, Bryce has a similar question on, he says, um, can you share your opinion if you think it's smart to sell green timbers as an exposed material or an exterior material? Our customers are expecting material that has minimal checking or, or no checks. 
I've been in the business 40 plus years and checking on timbers has always just been part of Douglas fir. So um, Bryce, I I agree. Um, I I definitely don't think it's wise to sell green timbers for exterior usage in this particular case because your customer doesn't want any checking. You're going to get even more checking when you're using green material because there's obviously a lot more delta that's happening, a lot more moisture exchange. Though kiln dried Um, for exterior timbers isn't always a good idea either. As I said earlier, that kiln drying hardens the cell walls. The air dried timber is gonna be a little bit more flexible with changing conditions than that hardened cell wall kiln dried timber. So as a storm blows through in an afternoon, the air dried timbers are going to kind of be a little bit spongier, flex a little bit more um, and not have really any problems. Whereas that storm could blow through and cause a little bit of expansion in the hardened kiln dried timbers could cause more checking, more release of that tension. Not to mention there's already a bit of tension built up because in kiln drying, you're essentially case hardening, then re-injecting moisture right at the end of the kiln dry cycle in order to reverse the case hardening. So there's a tension being built up through that shrinking and that expanding the whole time. If you were to go with a radio frequency vacuum kiln dry temper, um, excuse me, I should say, unless you're using a vacuum RF kiln, you're not gonna get uniform moisture content throughout that KD timber. So that outer layer is just going to check as the moist gooey center moves even more underneath it. So if you want uh, a timber that's not going to check, the customer's expecting your checks, you're really gonna want an RF vacuum kiln, radio frequency vacuum kiln timber that has 100% uniform moisture content, whatever that is, and you really want that dry down uh, low. As far as exterior use, much of that will depend on where you're building this. And you know, if you're building it in the desert, you're gonna want that dried down to 6%. If you're building it in like the mid-Atlantic where I am, 12% might be a little bit better, but you're gonna want it to be 100%. Even then, I think you're gonna see a little bit of checking as an exterior usage. Ways to control that would be to paint it, you know, um, or pick a heck of a lot of finish over top of it will ask as even more of a moisture, not barrier, but slow moisture exchange. The same reason we use latex paint or things like anchor seal to seal up a log, the paint may help control that. But I definitely would not guarantee to a customer that there's gonna be no checking. The only way I've seen people get away with this is by skinning uh, a manufactured product by using, you know, either a heavier veneer over like an LVL, um, or even creating like a hollow timber, like miter lock joints at the corner and creating like a sleeve that can then go over either nothing if it doesn't have to be structural or go over like a metal post if it needs to be structural. That way you've just got the outer aesthetics that won't check because you're using kiln-dried exterior lumber in that um, miter lock joint or something along that line, a Hoffman joint or something like that would be a good idea. I definitely wouldn't use a solid timber because I, I don't think there's any way to avoid it checking unless you're like live in the perfect stable climate which I don't think exists. So good luck with that, Bryce. Uh, Next one I have here is from Jonathan on uh, a replacement for Western Red Cedar. He says, what is the best mid-Atlantic, truly lightweight wood replacement for clear Western Red Cedar? Poplar is too heavy to be a legitimate contender. 
I don't know how to source spruce locally, but I've heard of amazing stock out in West Virginia. Basswood seems to be a strong candidate, although most lumber yards only stock it in big chunks as opposed to long 16 foot straight grain pieces like I can find Western red cedar in. While it's not native, it is local. What about Polonia? Is it too weak? Are there other candidates I'm missing? So my immediate question here, now, by the way, this is Jonathan who actually inspired the Poplar episode and he was talking about boat building. So I believe this, this question was taken a little bit out of context, but I believe he's still talking about boat building, but that's gonna be my first question. You're looking to replace Western Red Cedar. Well, what would you be using Western Red Cedar for and what is important to you in that application? You need to understand what's most important and then find a species that's going to replace that. He mentions weight. He mentions 16 foot straight grain pieces. Um, So what I recommend is you go to a place like everyone's favorite, the wood database, go to their wood filter, and let's start with weight. Well, we know, if you don't know, um, I happen to know this off the top of my head because I'm a geek that way, the weight of um, Western red cedar is about 23 pounds per cubic foot. It's quite lightweight. So I can go into the wood filter and I can slide the little sliders, let's just say between 18 and 30 pounds per cubic foot. I could certainly you know, broaden that range. That, and then I'm gonna say, let's look just in North America. He's looking specifically in the mid-Atlantic, but I can't get that granular just yet. Um, I'm gonna leave softwoods and hardwoods, take both of them. And North America, I get 44 species that have about the same weight as Western red. So I can look through here. Um, What else? What else is important? Well, uh, he's saying 60 foot lengths. That's not something I can really sort for here in the the wood database. But with 44 species, um, maybe I can, let's dial the weight back a little bit more. Let's go down to 27 pounds instead of up to 30. Now I go from 44 species to 26 species. And uh, the aspens are in there. Buckeye, yellow buckeye is in there. Basswood, you brought up basswood. I'll approach that in just a second. Butternut is an interesting option. Quite lightweight, um, cousin of of, uh, of walnut. The problem is, is, as we know, walnut is a particularly knotty tree, not bad, meaning it's got lots of knots. It's it's a it's a field tree. It branches very quickly. It doesn't have a lot of super long straight grain. In fact, the NHLA grading standards are different for walnut than it is for some other hardwoods because of just the way the tree grows. So finding 60-foot links there, it's not impossible, but it's going to be very expensive. Um, Atlantic white cedar, western red cedar, that's going to be a very close... Um, uh, a competitor. Now, Western red cedar is, is technically not a cedar. Uh, it's in the th- it's in the Thuya genus. The Thuya plicata is its uh, botanical. Atlantic white does fall into the cedar um, families, but northern white cedar is a little bit closer to Western red. So Atlantic white and northern white both fall in this list. Um, aromatic cedar also falls in that list. Um, I would say northern white would be your better option, the closest replacement to western red but there's other things we can look at the cottonwoods your black cottonwoods um uh eastern cottonwood are both on this list right now as is uh polonia 
which you brought up as well. Sugar pine, western white pine, red spruce, Engelmann spruce, white spruce, Sitka spruce. We talked about all the spruces. The, the issue with spruce is you're competing with the tone wood stuff. So the really, really clear stuff is going to be specifically cut and sawn and probably already purchased by the luthiers, by the large entities, the Gibson guitars and Taylors and Martins and PRSs that are buying soundboards specifically and have lines into specific concessions to get those. So if you can get a line on some spruce, yeah, that's a, that's a great way to go. Nice, strong wood, harder than Western red substantially. But again, is the hardness of Western red, is that a factor? Is that something that's important to you? You want that same 380 Janka hardness or lack of hardness that is Western red, but something like spruce, dependent upon the type of spruce, you might find that it's closer to 600. Some of the spruces will be down in the 400s. Um, balsam poplar is another option. Uh, as I mentioned in my last episode, yellow poplar, Loriodendron tulipifera, isn't actually a poplar and it's uh, quite a bit harder and heavier than the true poplars, true poplars being the cottonwoods. So Eastern cottonwood, black cottonwood are both good options for you to look at. Um, basswood is a, a, a great option. Uh, certainly it's it falls under the weight. The hardness is a little bit harder than Western red. Yes, it is a carving wood and it tends to come in large blocks for carving or tiny little blocks for, for carving, but it is certainly can be had in larger, um, larger planks. I know this because I stock it, because I have some customers, ironically, those customers who sell those carving blocks, but what they do is they buy the larger pieces from us and then they cut them into their specific sizes. They sell like kind of grab bag boxes for figure uh, carvers and things like that. So there's a box that has like 12 different pieces of kind of standard figure carving type things. They buy large, um, eight quarter by eight by usually 12 foot long boards from us and then they cut them themselves to order. It was just a matter of us going to our sawmill supplier for basswood and saying, here's the demand and that their that sawmill was happy because then they didn't have to do a bunch of sawing. The demand for basswood, as you say, is for those carving blocks. So that's largely what you see. So what you would need to do is go to um, reach out to a sawmill who sells basswood, reach out to a sawmill, find out if they sell basswood and say, look, can I buy it in the longer planks? Because that sawmill is still going to saw that log like any other species. It's gonna be processed into whatever the market demands for later, usually by a millwork house. Um, you can even go to a retailer and say, where do you buy your basswood? Could I possibly get longer planks? They just have to call their supplier. I guarantee you they can get it. It's like the thing that people say, oh, you know, the wood, you can't buy this species anymore. It used to be all wide and things like that. Nine times out of 10, the tree is still there. It's still producing wide planks, but the market doesn't demand 18, 20 inch wide planks. There are very, very few applications for those wider boards. What the market, what the market generally demands is six to eight inch wide lumber. And that's why most of the lumber we see is six to eight inches wide. Moreover, the NHLA grading standard is a cutting grade, means the grade FAS select number one common, two common is based upon the size of the clear cut you can get from it. It is not an appearance grade. 
People think that. They think, oh, it depends on you know the percentage of, of, of defects. No, it's the clearness in a certain cutting size. FAS Lumber says you can hit 83% clear in a six inch wide but eight foot long board. It must be clear in that area. It, it has nothing to do with how many of the knots you have. You could have a much, much larger piece with more defects and the percentage will drop. So ultimately, what the sawmills are trying to do is produce FAS lumber. If they can't get FAS lumber, they're trying to get select or number one common. So they're cutting to get that grade. The grade does not give them bonus points for a 10 inch wide board or a 15 inch wide board. But if they can take a 15 inch wide board and cut it into two seven and a half inch wide boards, or let's just say seven inch wide boards, now they've got two boards instead of one, and those two boards are gonna turn, fly off the shelf faster than the wide board because there's much more demand for it. So basswood, yes, that's all you're seeing, but that doesn't mean that the tree, the tree is not growing in tiny little carving blank sizes. The tree is quite hardy, quite large, uh, quite tall actually, and, and quite a large diameter. So it's a matter of, of making a few phone calls and asking, can I buy that before you cut it up into tiny little carving blocks? Um, Polonia, I think, is a fantastic option. Incredibly lightweight. It's going to be lighter weight than um, than cedar. I don't remember offhand what its weight is. It is 18. Yeah, 18 pounds is right at the bottom of that scale that I, I put. I could drop that scale down even lower and probably get more species. But incredibly lightweight. It is a ring porous wood with long, continuous fibers and can actually be quite strong. It was prized by Japanese merchants um, as far back as into the Shogun era uh, to build Tansu. Um, tansu being merchant cases that generally were carried on the merchant's back from village to village. So they wanted something that was going to be strong, could take a beating as they're picking it up and putting it down and filling all the drawers and things, but also light enough that they can carry it from village to village. Um, I personally have done a little bit of steam bending with Polonia. I've done a fair amount of carving with the stuff. Um, yeah, uh, the tree is an invasive weed, so it kind of grows everywhere. That would probably be a really good option for you. But again, the exercise, and one of the reasons I'm spending so much time on this question is, the exercise here is to look at what is important to you. You wanna replace Western Red Cedar. We're just gonna make a guess here and say you're building it to, to, you're using it to make a strip canoe. So what are the important things? What makes Western Red, what makes the Western Red canoe so ubiquitous? What is it about Western Red that makes it perfect for that application? Come up with a list of three, four, five different things, kind of in, in priority and hierarchy. Use the wood filter on the wood database to zero in. You know, what is it, what is it, Western Red? Well, it's light. Well, we already know 23 pounds per cubic foot. Um, what else? It's it's exterior. It's a good exterior. It's rated as highly durable. Well, in the wood filter on the wood database, you can choose the durability. You can choose um, durable, moderately durable, non-durable, etc., or very durable. Um, so if, for instance, I chose very durable, that list of like 39 species we have, it now drops down to five. Uh, Western red is, is one of them. Northern white cedar shows up. Atlantic white cedar shows up as well. I said again, those would be really good um, options. The other thing you can look at is what is the genus and species of that perfect wood? In this case, Western red. Well, it's a Thuya plicata. Well, if you look at northern white cedar, 
Thuya occidentalis. So again, it's a cousin that's probably going to be a good alternative, and you're going to have more luck finding it in the mid-Atlantic, at least on the East Coast, than anywhere else. So there's a bunch of different options, but this, this is kind of at the heart of all of my understanding what it is about that wood and the technical property that relates to it. You know, I need something that's got, uh, I can bend it without breaking it. Well, what's the bending strength? Now use the sliders in the, in the wood database to find something with a similar bending strength and source it locally to you. There's a lot that, a lot of new species that you can uncover by doing this. So again, been a long time on that, but I really wanted to kind of hammer that point home because I think it's important because you could, you could ask the same question about 20 different things, 20 different species, 300 different applications, understand what's important and replicate it. So that brings me to my last question, which is a voicemail from Gene who wants to plant some trees. My wife and I are moving to Calgary, Alberta, and if everything works out, we're going to get some acreage, and I'd really love to plant a walnut grove, you know, for posterity, because I use so much walnut in my work, but I just don't know where to start. Do I just plant some trees and hope for the best? <laughs> well, I suppose that's one way to look at it, Gene. The important thing here is um, look around. Uh, what else is growing on that land that you've got up in Calgary? You also can begin to search on botanical websites in uh, the Alberta area, talk with the local nurseries in the area, find out which trees are growing well, um, not, not just growing, but growing well. Is walnut a tree that's going to survive? Uh, if I remember correctly, the I can never remember the the zones of growing. I'm I'm certainly not a gardener by any means, but you can look up the various species, and they have zones like three. I think one through seven is I think what they are. Uh, if I remember, walnuts like three or four. Um, and quick Google search shows me that Calgary falls four and four to five. I don't know. I could be wrong there. But again, that's the first place to start. Is it even feasible? It's my understanding that yes, walnut will grow in parts of Alberta. Obviously, Alberta is a very big province, so you have to figure that out. Then look at the rest of the property. What else is growing in that property? And is it competitive or not? Are the trees, like what is the canopy like that exists on the land that you have? Walnut is um, a shade tolerant tree, but it's kind of a weakling. So you might have a canopy that's taking a lot of the light, but if there's a, if it's really closely, um, the trees are really closely packed in there, walnut's probably going to get beat up on by a lot of the other species. And more than likely, if they're densely packed, there's going to be other species there. Now, it sounds like maybe you're going to end up with just open land and you want to create a stand of trees. That's going to be a better environment for planting a new stand because you don't have to, a new stand, not a news stand, um, a new stand of trees because then you don't have a bunch of competing factors. You've got a bunch of maples and oaks or poplars they're really hardy trees they tend to kind of squeeze out the guys around them so walnut will do well in an open field walnut will do well in a forest as long as it doesn't have too much undergrowth and too many other big bully trees beating it out so the next thing is you need to figure out like how much land do I have to work with and then essentially lay out a grid. You need to make sure that you're spacing these trees far enough apart that as they mature, they're not going to bump into one another and compete and choke each other out and possibly kill you know, all the trees. Um, you could kind of scatter 
seed, you know, with like a, a broadcast spreader, like you would fertilize your lawn and just get a whole bunch of seedlings growing and let uh, uh, nature compete itself out and see which ones, which ones win. Walnut being as finicky as it is, uh, that could go horribly wrong. They could all die. Um, you're better off kind of laying out a grid and making sure you've got enough space between each tree. Again, talking to your local nursery will give you some idea of exactly how much space you need, um, where you also can look at uh, Forest Products Laboratories um, uh, uh, write-up, if you will, chapter on walnut and look at what environment it does best in. The other thing is, is if you can find a walnut grove or walnut stand of trees, go take a bunch of pictures, go look at the spacing, go see how it's doing. What does the canopy look like? What other species are growing around it? What, and again, what is the spacing between those trees and do your best to emulate that. If it's growing well already, it's probably going to work well for you. Obviously, the wild card in this mix is the particular climate that you're in. So again, start there and figure that out. You might find that walnut may not work out for you. Um, The other thing to be conscious of, if there are other trees on the land, walnut can be quite toxic. Um, the, uh, the nuts itself and the oils and the extractives, the euglin, um, enzyme, I guess is what we call it. Uh, walnuts genus is euglins. Um, euglins nigra is the botanical, um, Euglins is that enzyme that it secretes that actually makes it like poisonous to horses, but also a lot of other trees. So if you have some existing trees and you start planting this walnut grove, you could possibly kill the other trees. So be very conscious of that. Again, as I said, you might be better off with open land. I don't recommend you go and clear a forest in order to do this, but if you're starting with open land, that's going to be the best place to go. Ultimately, those first couple of years are going to be the tough ones. You need to get those those seedlings growing. Are you going to start from seeds? Are you going to go to a nursery and buy like a one or two year old tree? That's obviously going to be substantially a bit more expensive, but if you get over that initial year, that could be you know a little bit easier. At the same time, you've got more risk there. If those one to two-year-old saplings don't do well and they die, you've got a significant investment into those and they just died. So if it were me, I would probably go from either seedlings or from seed and see what happens. You know, take very good care of them like they were little kids the first couple of years. Once they get going, you want to continue to prune them, you know, for lumber. Keep those lower branches um, cut off so that the, the bark, excuse me, the trunk continues to grow outward and upward. You'll end up with a nice canopy and much more hardy looking trees. Again, I'm not an arborist. Consult with an arborist. Consult with your local nursery to figure out what's going to work best in the immediate region where you end up in the Calgary area. Great question. I'm really curious to see how that goes. And that kind of brings me to the end of the show. A real grab bag of questions. We're talking a lot about logs and, and how we deal with logs and how we might plant to make logs. Interesting stuff. Thank you, as always, everybody, for your questions. Thank you for those who sponsor the show over at patreon.com slash lumber update. If you want to do the same, please go over there and hook me up. I'd always appreciate it. And as I said at the beginning of the show, keep sending in those questions. Always fascinating to hear what you guys ask. And uh, yeah, find out what lumber you want to replace, research it, and go buy some of that lumber. Bye, everybody.